the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel is on special assignment in Washington, D.C. Uh, she chairs the National Council on Aging and is there for a board meeting. So I have the pleasure of spending this hour on Caregiver SOS On Air uh, all alone with Dr. Sandra Edmonds' crew. Uh, she is the dean of the Howard University School of Social Work, holds a bachelor's in social work and a master's in social work from the National Catholic School of Social Services at Catholic University, earned her Ph.D. in social work from Howard University, and is a member of the Academy of Certified Social Workers. And I guess the answer is, if you need a social worker, call Dr. Crew. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. One of the issues that uh, face so many families today, and I know you spend a lot of your time uh, working with and caring about uh, caregivers and family situations, are are more and more families that uh, have an adult member of that family who has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's or another form of dementia. Uh, and, And it is a downhill slope that can be so emotionally traumatizing to families. Absolutely. Um, I I often say to individuals, before I became a caregiver for my mother who has Alzheimer's, uh, I would give advice. And now when I bump into those individuals, I say to them, I am so sorry. (laughs) Uh, The advice that I gave you before I actually had the journey myself um, was somewhat uh, limited, and now I have a better sense of the emotional uh, aspect of caregiving. So it's more than just knowing the facts. It is, it is sharing the experience that really makes a difference. And, and what has that experience been like for you? Uh, my, my mother um, is 90, and uh, she has uh, suffered with uh, dementia, Alzheimer's, for probably, she's been diagnosed for probably about 15 years. And before that, my grandmother uh, had dementia as well. So I have sort of a, a dual understanding it, understanding of it from two relatives. But what has it been like for me? Uh, you know, a typical, when I think about a typical week of caregiving, my mother uh, fortunately lives in a assisted living uh, home where she receives excellent care. But on a weekly basis, I'm visiting uh, her home. I am interacting with the caregivers who are there. I am really trying to maintain her home, uh, which is located in another state. I'm trying to work. I'm trying to be a reasonably good spouse. And all of that together uh, really creates an atmosphere of a caregiver being a very, very busy person. You could be center ring in a circus as a juggler. Absolutely, absolutely. But uh, what I haven't said is that, you know, with caregiving, it's, it's the span of emotions. And so when I think about it, on some days, I am truly on cloud nine because something my mother has said has really connected me with the person I know that she is. So I am really just reeling from that. For example, last week when I visited her, she asked me the usual question, are you married? And I say, yes, I'm married. And, and then she said, do you have any children? And we go through 
that uh, answer phase. And then I said, well, Mom, are you married? And she said, yes, and I love my husband so much. And her husband was my dad. Right. And so she's able to pull back, pull up those precious memories. So on days like that, it's like I have really hit the lottery and because I've tapped in to something that was really important. On other days, it's the sadness of realizing that she doesn't know who I am. And she has no particular recall of the things that I know that bring her joy. So I can find myself in that space. So it really is a roller coaster of emotions. And I think the secret to being healthy and balanced as a caregiver is to understand that it is a roller coaster and you won't be in any one uh, space for a long period of time. Now, one of the things we're often told, Dr. Crew, uh, is in, in a lot of situations it's very helpful to bring in uh, a, a geriatric social worker who's uh, knowledgeable and qualified in, in helping you make the kinds of decisions that can make caregiving uh, less stressful and perhaps easier. Uh, and for folks who don't know, what do social workers do? Well, social workers really help the family process the dynamics of their family. And uh, what we say here at Howard University and, and many other programs of social work, we start where the family is. So therefore, we would help the person understand the assessment, the diagnosis, understand their options, understand the importance of bringing families together and really facilitate bringing families together uh, in the relationship, help to identify the needs of the individuals who need services, and um, in addition to that, really facilitate the emotions. I, I, we do a lot about emotional facilitation, helping the family members as well as the care providers. Uh, for example, my mother in assisted living, a geriatric social worker can come in and say, you know, I think she would do better uh, if you integrated her with other residents in the assisted living area. So social workers really sort of help to start where the client is and kind of talk about person-centered care. We keep our focus on person and environment, and we help the uh, family understand what their options are and what the consequences of the options are that they are selecting. And in your mother's case, we've often been told that music is a great way to connect with someone with Alzheimer's, that they may recall the music of yesteryear. Absolutely. In, in my mother's case, it, it, it really um, has been one of the areas that uh, I can communicate through music when the, the normal conversation is not as productive as I would like it to be. So what we see is that using, um, many people are using the iPod, so I use the old-fashioned CD with my mother and play gospel music on Sunday. And so even though when she's not communicating with me, I can see the foot tapping and the hand, uh, the hands bobbing and the head bobbing and all of that kind of things. But once she does that, I see that she's more intact with me. Hmm. Uh, so I think it taps into those times um, uh, in the earlier days when during their upbringing, but also during the time of child rearing. Because very often the children who are coming in, adult children, are really more attached to the parents through their generational music than it is through their parents' generational music. And I find with my mother, she is as excited about Motown as she was about the earlier music during her days, such as Duke Ellington. Now, Barry Bess and I are both smiling because you, you used the term uh, that just brought laughter to the studio, which was, I use that old-fashioned technology, CDs. Yes. And, and for your mother, the old-fashioned technology probably would have been vinyl. Absolutely. 45 RPM. Yeah, you got it. You know, we won't go back uh, <laughs> beyond that, but absolutely. But I think since we were all in ca in college, right. we sort of brought her on uh, up to speed, and that's sort of the last technology. Oh, that's cool. But I can put the my uh, iPhone 
and have her listen to the ear headset, and she's perfectly in tune with that. If you've just joined us, we're talking with Sandra Edmonds' crew. Uh, she's a Ph.D. in social work, is dean of the Howard University School of Social Work in Washington, D.C. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel on special assignment today, chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging, and she is heading uh, to exactly where Sandra hangs out, Washington, D.C., where they have a board meeting coming up. Now, folks for, who are listening, uh, Sandra, I spent a lot of years in Washington, D.C., and I'm quite familiar with Howard University and its incredible reputation as an outstanding not only school of social work but law school and med school. Tell us a little bit about Howard for those who aren't familiar with it. Uh, Howard University, again, is located in the na- in nation's capital, and uh, we are about to celebrate our sesquicentennial, meaning 150 years of uh, education uh, for uh, the nation and the global community. Uh, we have liberal arts, we have professional schools, we have the, the STEM areas, uh, with particular as we medical college and so we're sort of the full package law school as you've said uh, many people know us because of the legendary Thurgood Marshall right and his role uh, here at Howard University and really focusing on social justice and we find all of our programs have that focus we focus on uh, the human condition and what it takes to address oppression, uh, not again, not only in the local community, but globally. Uh, at the School of Social Work, we are now celebrating 80 years of social work education. And a part of that is working with older persons, uh, making sure that we are not simply looking at one aspect of family. Because what you realize now, along with the rest of us, is that we are often in the older age category longer than we are in other stages of life. So we're really focused on uh, looking at aging uh, using a life course perspective. And that's sort of how it ties in with Howard University, uh, meaning that I'm always concerned about what happens to you in a younger age follows you to older age. I often uh, tell my students that uh, aging uh, is sort of like a hitchhiker. It really, what happens to you during your youth and ex- uh, determines the outcome that you will have later in life. All right, now stay with us just a minute. We're going to come right back to you and follow up on that because it's a fascinating point that you were making. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Sandra Edmonds Crew. Uh, Dr. Crew is at Howard University School of Social Work, where she's the dean. You hear us on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Caregiver SOS on air. Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal, to support seniors and their caregivers in our community. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to local senior programs that focus wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and the people that care for them. Programs like Caregiver SOS Resource Centers, which offer complimentary support programs for those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, as well as stroke, cancer, diabetes, chronic lung disease, and heart disease. San Antonio has six Caregiver SOS Resource Centers to help you. For locations or more information, go to caregiversos.org. That's caregiversos.org or call 866-390-6491. And for more information on how the WellMed Charitable Foundation is impacting San Antonio seniors and how you can help out, go to wellmedcharitablefoundation.org. Well, we could have subtitled this segment on Caregiver SOS On Air, everything you need to know about social work and a whole lot more. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel on special assignment today, so I am flying solo. Dr. Sandra Edmonds' crew is with us. Uh, she is a dean of the Howard University School of Social Work, and we were talking about uh, Howard University, and you, you started talking, Dr. Crew, about things that you teach your students about uh, the aging process, That, and I like that reference, that uh, whatever it is you do at a younger age, aging kind of hitchhikes along on that. Yes, yes. 
you know, in, in social work, we really think about biopsychosocial spiritual aspects of development. But when we think about disparities in younger age, they follow you to older age. And that's when we really began to understand the importance of intervening at the earliest possible moment. For example, uh, very simplistic things. Uh, if there are dental problems when you're a child, that becomes one of the major issues you face uh, as an older adult. Uh, so when we here at Howard, we have the opportunity to work with our dental college and making sure that we're sort of looking not only at, at the aspect of social work where we're really trying to connect the family systems together, we're looking at the other interprofessional systems that go along to uh, focus on quality of life. So when I kind of talk about age sort of uh, representing the cumulative advantage or disadvantage of early life, that is the framework in which we really present uh, aging here. Uh, understanding the cultural importance, the importance of culture, cultural intelligence when working with the family. Uh, so although we are pretty strong about the fact that we certainly cannot be competent in every culture, but what we can be is intelligent, understanding that the experience of the Latino community may be different from some aspects of the African-American community, from some aspects of the Asian community. So it's really important as we begin to think about aging that we really pay attention to what the life course experience was of that individual that we're working with. I can think back to when I was executive director of the Rape Crisis Center here in San Antonio. And one of the things that uh, you have to learn if you work in that field very quickly in the Latino community, and of course, uh, this part of the country has a large Latino population, there's great resistance and a hesitancy to report crimes of sexual violence, even more so than in the general population. Uh, absolutely. Um, and one of the things I know uh, in working with the Latino community is also fatalism. You know, the, the, the notion sometimes when we're, think, when we're talking about quality of life and uh, we are suggesting some areas that uh, might improve quality of life, I will hear an older person say, whatever will be, will be. And that's a parallel with the black community sometimes as we're really talking about end-of-life decisions, uh, the ways that we can sort of intervene, for example, with hospice. You know, w would that be a resource that's helpful uh, to the family? We sometimes have to realize how what the family feels about this. And we'll hear things such as, well, if I enroll in a program like this, this means that I'm predetermining my destiny. And that destiny has already been predetermined for me. So it's important that we understand that. And as social workers, we do. We recognize that belief system. But we also are able to bring in more information so to give the family a choice. And if, if the one thing I believe firmly in as a social worker and a gerontologist is to make sure that choice is at the center of the decision-making process. We have a—my uh, wife and I have three small children and, and use a number of just—they're wonderful babysitters, and one of them just got engaged. She happens to be Latino, and her family is putting tremendous pressure on her to have a big wedding to invite every aunt and uncle and cousin uh, and, and relative, no matter how far removed— uh, and she doesn't want to do that. She just wants to have a small little gathering. Uh, and that's the kind of social structure you're referring to. Absolutely. Absolutely. And having to navigate uh, what the family uh, is requesting of the person versus what the person really wants to do themselves. And as you really begin to think about aging, it's even more uh, compelling because one of the things I know I face as an African-American uh, woman who has uh, made the decision in collaboration with my uh, three siblings to have my mother in assisted living is the question of how can you do that? How can you institutionalize your mother? 
she's done so much for you. She and her father sacrificed so all four of you could get a college degree. So now in her time of need, this is what you do. So that, uh, the community pressure is that you conform to some of the practices uh, that were used before. And there's not always the appreciation that some of those practices were possible because people lived in the same geographical area. And it was usually the older daughter who took mama in. Exactly, and you, you lived in that geographical area, but also resources were different. There were, uh, there were not always the resources that you could have had the quality and competence care. But the culture would lay that, would mm-hmm. say, it's really you not respecting your mother rather than taking a, a, using all of the resources that are available to you at this point in time. How do you answer that when uh, some of your relatives, and I'm sure they have said that to you, how can you, how can you do that to your mother? Absolutely. And, and the one thing I can say about my particular culture, which is, you know, born in rural America, not only do they say that, they give you a piece of their mind right along with that. And how I answer that... I said, I really appreciate the fact that you care so much for mom. I really appreciate that. So I start with the strengths perspective, recognizing that they care enough to give me guidance. And then I say, you know, I'd love to keep mom, but I'm so concerned about her safety. When I tried to do this, all four of us tried to do this, we found that mom was at risk of not being safe in our homes. So we are doing this because we love her so very much. So I reframe it so that they can see the act is out of love, not of abandonment. Oh, you need to do that again so we can all write that down because we're not alone, I'm sure, among our listeners uh, who have that exact same criticism. Or uh, the family and Dr. Crew, as social workers, you come across this all the time, uh, where they have promised mom or dad, we will never put you in a home. And then they reach a point where they, they can't keep her at home. Oh, my one advice is never to make the big promise. I call that the big promise. The promise you should make is that I will give you the best care for as long as I can. I will promise to do that. I pledge with all of my heart and soul that you can count on me to give you the best that I can offer. And if that's living in your home, that is basically what I will try to do. So you're sort of giving yourself the opportunity to make the call based upon the needs of the individual. So usually when the person hears that, the focus is sometimes not so much on, will you keep me in my home? It has been shifted to, will you love me and care for me and make sure wherever I am that I'm loved and I'm cared for. That So, you know, so that's how I usually say, don't make the big promise. Make the promise that you will always love them and care for them for as long as you are able to do that. And that's a promise that you can keep. You can always keep that promise. And you will never feel guilty when you have to make the call. Although I must say, even then, it's that little guilt right. when you begin to think of the time your mother or your father sacrificed for you and you did something. Could I, is there a better choice? And the other thing I often say to my uh, social work students, it's not so much of keeping the person in the home. It's a much about their quality of life. If they're in their home and no one's happy, then what have you achieved? So, if, so sometimes we have to kind of really step back and say, is it, why does a person want to stay in their home? It has a lot to do with they believe that's the highest quality of life that they can have. And if that can be given elsewhere, then the home is no longer the center of the attention. It is that we will visit you wherever you are. We will make sure they're good caregivers wherever you are. We will make sure that you don't have to go up and down stairs if, you if you're not able to do that. So that's a whole different context. 
and for the caregiver, uh, yourself included in that situation, uh, you're a lot more rested, relaxed, and less stressed uh, to give quality time when you see your mom. Absolutely. Most (coughs) days of the week, my shoes match. (laughs) I understand that. (laughs) My mother uh, took care of my dad. They're both deceased now, but my mom uh, took care of my dad who had dementia, uh, and, and we would ask her, uh, you know, Mom, you know, maybe the time has come where, where you just can't do this because, you know, he went through a lot of the traditional behaviors, wandering at night. He got a period of time. He was angry. Uh, in the entire time that I lived there and, and uh, saw them together, he never once raised his voice. But uh, with Alzheimer's, of course, it wasn't him. It was the disease. He would raise his voice and yell at her. Uh, And and when we would say that to her, she would say, well, you know, I take seriously uh, that wedding vow in sickness and in health. And we couldn't get around that. Absolutely. Uh, The same was true with my grandfather and my grandmother, where all of us um, professional children came and supported them in trying to relocate my grandmother to a place that was safer for her. Mm -hmm. And my granddaddy said, well, that's my wife. And you're not taking my anywhere. Stay with me just a minute. We'll come right back. We're talking uh, about uh, families and caregivers and uh, individuals with Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. Dr. Sandra Edmonds Crew is with us. She is the dean of the Howard University School of Social Work and an absolute delight to talk to. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. This is Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel, our co-host on special assignment today, is chair of the board of the National Council on Aging. Uh, She is on her way to Washington for a board meeting. With us on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline, Sandra Edmonds-Crew, who is the dean of the Howard University School of Social Work. Dr. Crew holds a variety of degrees in social work. And one of the things uh, we're learning from you is some really great tips on how to tactfully and diplomatically uh, manage all of the stresses that come uh, with caregiving and family. Uh, well, you, you can move from your job right into the diplomatic corps, and they probably will have openings, whoever the next president is in Washington, D.C. Oh, that's what social workers do. <laughs> it's amazing. How do you learn that? Uh, again, I think, you know, part of being a social worker is to reserve your judgment of the situation and allow the individuals that you are working for and with to let you know what they want. Very often we find that trouble comes when we go in with a preconceived notion of what someone wants and what someone is capable of doing. A cookie cutter fix. Yeah, in social work we talk about the strengths perspective. Uh, even with my mom, and I'm using my mom because I, I understand her story. But when I go there, I know what her strengths are. So I can reach her in ways that others can't reach her. Uh, For example, I know there's nothing she likes better than a Pepsi Cola and a honey bun. (laughs) So when the things are going wrong, I can say, Mom, here's a Pepsi Cola and a honey bun. Well, that's the strength perspective. Rather than trying to make her do something that she doesn't want to do, find something that she really uh, wants to do. And guess what? She can still enjoy a honey bun, mm. Pepsi Cola, rather than to focus on the things she can't do. As social workers, we try to focus on what is it that a person can do and bring joy from that part of their life experience. So I think that's what makes us unique, is that we really are focused on what can we make happen here that's positive, rather than sort of looking at, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen if she can no longer walk again? How do you know when and how to retain a social worker? I and mean, We know about primary care physicians, and we know if you need to go to, for an X-ray or you need to see the podiatrist. Uh, how do you know, hey, you know what, we need a social worker? You know, I think when the family is is no longer able to perform their functions 
or they are performing their functions, but there's a great stress when siblings are at each other's throats uh, about something, or when you're, you don't have enough time to figure out what are all the possible resources. The finances are running short. Uh, sometimes that's sort of a signal, I believe. It's time for us to have a social worker enter the family into the family situation or particularly you know i don't want to uh, minimize the whole sibling arena when one caregiver feels like he or she is carrying the burden and they can't see that they have other resources and the reason that they're not accessing those other resources is because they have made the decision he or she has made the decision that i don't have help my siblings won't help me uh, they know that mom needs help. Why aren't they not? Why are they not here? That's a time when someone else on the outside looking in mm-hmm. is of great assistance to you. So I, I think it's when that begins to happen that the experience you're having with your loved ones is more negative than positive. Then I say that's time for you to really think about bringing in a social worker who can help you see the uh, strength of the person. I often say to individuals, I'll ask you this question. Um, Does your mother know who you are? Uh, And my answer is, you know, my mom only knows who I am about maybe 10 to 15 percent of the time, but I know who she is 100 percent of the time. (laughs) That's right. We have 115 percent going. Yes, that's right. Social worker can help you do that. And uh, how do you find one? Do you contract uh, with the social worker directly? Are they covered by insurance? Do you get a referral through your PCP? Uh, How do we hook up with one? I think referrals are really um, a good way through the PCP. But also I think uh, the adult uh, uh, family services uh, in your communities, older yeah, the Area Agency on Aging. Agencies on, agency, on, on Aging, they are good resources for finding a geriatric care manager or a social worker. NASW, the National Association of Social Workers, uh, and even the local uh, universities in your neighborhood are able to kind of tell you what the local resources are that are helpful uh, in this regard. So let's say I shine that light into the sky like Batman and uh, I get a social worker. we got a problem. Uh, how do you all work? You come to the house and hang out, observe, do an assessment? Uh, it depends on the type of social worker you have, but it always starts with an assessment, a biopsychosocial spiritual assessment. And usually we do come to the home. Uh, it, but sometimes family caregivers uh, need to see the social worker outside of the home. So they can talk privately with you. Talk privately. So it depends on what the situation calls for. Those social workers are in private practice, uh, so uh, Hmm. they handle it a bit differently. Usually the person goes to their office. Uh, Other social workers really are home uh, care-based, so they go to the home. So I think we are in a variety. We, We meet the client where the client is. And if the client needs to see us uh, in the hospital, that's where we, hospital social workers, are excellent resources uh, to be connected uh, with the whole caregiving experience. I had an experience, my brother and I, with a hospital social worker years and years ago when my mother, uh, in her 60s at the time, fell, broke both her wrists, pretty common as it turns out. Uh, and my dad, who should never have been driving, was driving uh, and had uh, in one day uh, several accidents and people uh, coming in and out of the hospital parking lot had complained to a management there that uh, such and such a driver car uh, was a hazard and they identified my dad. So we we met with the hospital social worker, uh, a young woman who was very knowledgeable, who was very caring and compassionate. And my brother, myself, and my mom, and this social worker came up with a strategy where uh, we would do a, a little intervention with my dad and and let him know that uh, we're concerned for his safety, that we love him, and maybe the time had come that he shouldn't be driving. How, how do you think it worked out? 
Well, there are two, two uh, there are probably multiple possibilities. Your dad could have listened to it and said, yes, but I'm grown. And I'm going to continue to do what I do, but I will be very careful. That's a 10-4 on that little buddy, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then my mother. But I have known individuals to say, you know what? I hear you. Yeah. Uh, so, but it can, it can happen either way. But what, what's important about that dialogue is options and choices. Right. And uh, letting the older person know that there are consequences. And my experience, uh, if dementia is involved, that's a whole different thing. Right. Well, it was. Well, you know, yeah. you are not going to, not usually. Right. Uh, not, I have not seen that as of yet, but I'm still hopeful. And then my mother, of course, who was right on with the program, uh, the minute she saw that my dad felt he was being attacked, uh, flipped and said, Sal's a wonderful driver. What are you all talking about? Absolutely. <laughs> and one could have predicted that that would yeah. happen. Yeah. Use the strategy with my mother to have someone disable the vehicle. Well, he lost the keys finally. Uh, absolutely. And that's what happened. So that, you know, we have to use those uh, strategies. Yeah. But, you know, one of the things with dementia, I, I always say this to my siblings, is that we are reasoning, reasoning with someone who's not able to reason in that way. Well, that's a good point. So it's it's uh, we want to sort of sit down and have that conversation as though we're we're dealing with a person who has all of the cognitive abilities. <laughs> and even if they do for moments of time, it won't last right uh, enough for that you know decision to be their decision. So choices it doesn't mean that you're going to go along with their decision. It means that they do understand the full range of options. Now, I'm assuming that's one of the uh, big issues you come up with uh, against as social workers and families is how do we get dad to quit driving? How do we get dad to turn over the finances is probably another one. Absolutely. And one of the things I say, once dementia uh, is present, that is not the good time to start. Uh, we should start very early with aging parents and not think about a disease state to begin that dialogue in and whether or not it's dementia, cancer, or uh, any other terminal uh, illnesses. The decision about finances and driving and all of those kind of things should start earlier. So you have some foundation to build upon. But in case you're like some of us, myself included, and you wait to... to uh, at the point when a crisis presents itself, then that is very, very, very difficult. And what I say is that safety is what's most important. And there will be hurt feelings, and caregivers have to realize it really isn't about them. It really isn't. Mom didn't do the things and say the things to me because she wanted to hurt Sandra. She said it because she wanted to be independent. And that's a good thing. So even though her being independent was dangerous to others and self, she didn't intend to be um, dangerous. So once we sort of understand that and so all of the things, and there's some nasty things that come with uh, statements people say about you, but you really have to realize it is the disease, it is the illness speaking, and not the person who loves me. Let's do this because we've got about a minute left. For those listening who may have a son or a daughter uh, thinking about social work, uh, you recommend it as a career, I would think. Absolutely. The best career out there because it's both personal and professional. And for uh, applications to Howard University, just go online? Absolutely. www.socialwork.howard.edu. And we offer six fields of practice. Uh, aging gerontology is one of those, family and child welfare, mental health, criminal justice, social work with displaced populations, uh, health, and mental health. Well, Sandra Crew, you've been a great guest. And... Uh I want to thank you. Um, at some point, we'd love to get you back on, and I appreciate your time. Oh, it's my pleasure, and uh, everyone do well with your responsibility as caregivers. Thank you very much, Dr. Sandra Crew, who is at Howard University, Dean of the School of Social Work. What a great guest. Carol Zerniel on special assignment, uh, but through the magic of radio, she will rejoin us for Take 10 which follows this segment of Caregiver SOS on air. You hear us at 9.30 a.m., The Answer. 
Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal? To support seniors and their caregivers in our community. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to local senior programs that focus wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and the people that care for them. Programs like Caregiver SOS Resource Centers, which offer complimentary support programs for those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, as well as stroke, cancer, diabetes, chronic lung disease, and heart disease. San Antonio has six Caregiver SOS Resource Centers to help you. For locations or more information, go to caregiversos.org. That's caregiversos.org or call 866-390-6491. And for more information on how the WellMed Charitable Foundation is impacting San Antonio seniors and how you can help out, go to wellmedcharitablefoundation.org. We're just sitting here on the beaches of Hawaii, getting ready to talk. No, music always makes me think of that. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernio. You're listening to Take Ten on Caregiver SOS on Air, and we are joined, as we often are in our Take Ten segment, by Dr. Jamie Heisman, a nationally known expert on caregiving and addictions. Interesting combination, in fact. And, And Carol, you just came from two. Really important conferences dealing with aging and caregiving and all the issues surrounding it. So you had a pretty good topic for this take down. Well, I I thought we would talk about the state of caregiving. So you know, my takeaways from the White House conference on aging with caregiving is one of the four key topics. You know, besides the the fact that we don't pay our paid caregivers enough, they make thirteen thousand a year, which we we mentioned earlier in the show. The one what they didn't talk about was the complete lack of a system for long-term services and support. So, you know, if you don't spend down to Medicaid or you don't have enough money for private pay, we don't have a system of caring. You're stuck. You're, you're stuck in the middle. So, Jamie, in terms of the, if you know, if you were planning the White House Conference on Aging and the caregiving segment, you know, what do you think would have been like the top three things that you might have wanted to, to bring up as important. You know, Carol, this was an open dialogue with America, and we could be authentic, square up. I think we would have paid a, a huge amount of attention to exactly what you said was not paid to, which is long-term care um, and, and, and where we're going from here. Because if you look at the health care reform, though it had you know, great delivery system changes and transformations, it never addressed long-term care. It never addressed really how do we age in place, Uh, all the services of direct care uh, workers, how do we deal with them in terms of a proper way of of giving them salaries and benefits and making sure that we treat those who treat the people we love um, extremely well. We we really did not get into that from what I saw. Now, you were there, and I appreciate your response about what was left out, Um, but it's unfortunate because I would talk about professional caregiving. I would talk about what we do and educate family caregivers because we know that family caregivers, just like parenting, have little or no real curriculum to figure this out. Well, and, you know, you talk about you're absolutely right. I mean, when we think about when a child is born, we go to all these parenting classes and we read all these books and you know, we get ready, we get ready, um, but maybe you're a caregiver who didn't know you were going to become a caregiver. You get thrown into it. You've never had a curriculum. You don't even know where to find a curriculum. Um, so that whole lack of training is very real, uh, and people are looking for the training, and it's either not there or they can't find it. Well, we just interviewed someone on this program, Ken Slavin, uh, a well-known local singer and, and public relations professional who uh, overnight became a caregiver for his mom, diagnosed with uh, renal cancer that had metastasized into her lungs, had no idea it was there, and suddenly he's a caregiver. You know, personally, I believe that there's a lot of implications that go into this word caregiving. Obviously, it's been something we've taken for granted. Um, it's been something disproportionately put in women's laps. It's, it's almost been gender-specific. Of course, we know now that one out of two marriages are ending out in divorce, so men are going to have to uh, really show up and, and be taught. But for some reason, like um, many rights in our country, 
you know, it's whose ox is getting gored. And, and for, for the life of me, I think they've treated this like we are all Mother Teresa's instead of, instead of formalizing education, showing the respect, you know, to caregivers that they deserve, knowing that if they quit, providing now $400 billion of in-kind care, their entire health care system would collapse. Yeah, it would be interesting if they'd had a discussion rather than spending, you know, all of the money on the nursing home side. Uh, only still in most states, Medicaid, you have to be eligible for Medicaid to be a paid family member. If you're eligible for Medicaid, they'll let you stay at home with a family member taking care of you, and they'll pay that family member. That is not an option that is available you know, for at higher incomes, and I'm not talking about rich. We're talking about just above the poverty level or the the cutoff for Medicaid. And there are so many families where, if we could, you know, you're asking somebody to quit working. We know that a woman who quits working to caregive is going to lose about three hundred and thirty-five thousand dollars in lost income and retirement income overall. And we're asking her to do that. When could we not invest some of the at the end cost of the nursing home costs and help support that family caregiver and give her some income, keep her in the work, sort of the working pool, but the work she's doing is keeping mom out of the nursing home. Well, is anybody looking at this with 10,000 baby boomers turning 65 every day? Uh, the numbers of caregivers uh, are going to run out in terms of family members, uh, and the well, need for professional caregivers grows. As usual, we are starting to line up with the financial incentives now that we have, you know. Yeah, now that there are financial incentives. incentives. Right. Ours as a country, quality of care outcomes that we're being paid on, if you will, value-based health care. You see, what Carol just described, Ron, taught everybody was a disease-specific sort of world that we're trying to emerge from, that fee-for-service world. If everybody, and I'm not, this is not a big, you know, high five for social workers, but if everybody in the government saw health care in a family systems approach, the way we were trained as social workers, um, you know, from the beginning of time, they would know that hospitals, skilled nursing facilities, assisted living facilities need to take the responsibility and it needs to be, I think, legislated in some way to actually bring in the caregivers through education, through sort of, you know, how do we deal with their mental health? How do they help in the care transitions uh, process of admissions and readmissions? How do they help with medication compliance? These, to me, are institutional responsibilities if we're looking at a value-based health system and a family systems approach. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Take 10, part of Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel and Dr. Jamie Heisman. We're talking about the state of caregiving in America today. Yeah, and, and, you know, with the caregiving issues that we're facing, um, there's a I, where the thought, I, I don't think the connecting the dots has, has happened that often, is, you know, that we're all relying on, a good, it's like the voluntary military. Um, we're all relying on the goodwill of families uh, to jump in like our guest and take care of our parents and our spouses and our children and anybody who needs care. Um, and that we're going to, you know, because actually we could all sit down and say, nope. I'm not going to do that. I'm not I'm not going to take care of mom. I'm not going to take care of my husband. No, I'm not going to do that. And everything would completely fall apart. Totally. So and you know, you know China actually has legislated that. Their one child policy has had severe uh implications in terms of family caregiving and so now in China they've codified. They literally put in laws that if you don't take care of your parents um, it's a crime. And they'll kill you. And so here in America, <laughs> They'll throw you in jail. <laughs> so someone else, somebody else has to take care of two pairs of parents. <laughs> well, I'm sure they're going to do something other than put you in jail. That, you know, that, that's a tad counterproductive, but you may be, be correct. But, but here it's become, I mean, in China, it's become such an issue that it's actually now part of the laws. I agree with you, Carol. I think that we're looking at a volunteer group here, and we're, that's the, one of the problems, I think, of the White House Conference on Aging for me, that their tagline was empowering all Americans as we age. Well, it's great to empower all Americans, but how do you empower all Americans? What is our responsibility? In fact, what is government really supposed to do 
if not to educate and empower and provide programming so caregivers are prepared. Right. And I, I, I think one of the things they did do at the White House Commerce, they were really they had a surprising number of private industry, a business at that particular conference talking about technology, talking about how companies now we talked about the financial incentives, this this you know, people are seeing, oh, I could make money off of this crisis. Right. And they're talking about how for-profit companies and entrepreneurs are going to go into this space and, and, and maybe help, maybe displace some traditional providers. But it, it still, to me, feels patchwork. It feels a little of this, a little of that. Maybe we'll all throw it in, make chicken soup together. Um, it's not a system. Got less no. than a minute left, Jamie. You get the last word. Well, like Native Americans, it's not honoring the wisdom and, and the life and the integrity of our seniors. If we're waiting for this financial sort of gold rush and we're making this all, again, a financial piece, uh, I think it lacks the heart and soul of how do we honor our elders who used to be, obviously, the people that built our society, that fought our wars, that, that did everything for this country. I think we need to go far beyond this sort of private enterprise and as a government, Take ownership of this issue. Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman and Carol Zerniel. I'm Ron Aaron. Oddly enough, it'll look like we plan this out next week. The spinoff out of this topic, caregiver burnout. We talk about it on Take 10 right here on your friendly 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air. Presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal, to support seniors and their caregivers in our community. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to local senior programs that focus wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and the people that care for them. Programs like Caregiver SOS Resource Centers, which offer complimentary support programs for those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, as well as stroke, cancer, diabetes, chronic lung disease, and heart disease. San Antonio has six Caregiver SOS Resource Centers to help you. For locations or more information, go to caregiversos.org. That's caregiversos.org or call 866-390-6491. And for more information on how the WellMed Charitable Foundation is impacting San Antonio seniors and how you can help out, go to wellmedcharitablefoundation.org. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.